On this special episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, recorded live and largely unedited during the 2020 ASC Association Winter Seminars in New Orleans, Louisiana, we discuss some of the takeaways from the Thursday and Friday morning sessions with the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategy staff, Ann Geyer and Christina Benton. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, a podcast for anyone interested in the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to ambulatory healthcare strategies have an edge. AHS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement, risk management, emergency and infection control programs, run their meetings, develop education programs, and always be prepared for surveys. Welcome to episode 82 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for January 17th, 2020, recording from the ASCA 2020 Winter Seminar in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is Judy D'Ambrosio. I'm the Director of Educational Services for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and I'm here with John Gailey. John is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the aspects of the ambulatory surgery industry, the author of the major books about the industry, and the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the industry leader in ASC regulatory and accreditation, governance, and quality improvement oversight. John speaks frequently at both national and state ASC meetings on a wide variety of topics. So first of all, we need to note that uh, uh, Sue is not with us. That's why she's not doing the introduction like uh, normally. I don't want anybody to feel like Sue is suddenly off the podcast. So uh, so we're here with uh, the staff of AHS, and then we in- invited Christina Benton, our, our close friend, um, here also. So why don't we just go around the room and introduce everybody? Zach? Zach Kalaridis, consultant with Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Alex Borneman, Director of Operations at AHS. Christina Benton, President of Coding Compliance Management. Well, I already told them who I was. <laughs> this is Judy D'Ambrosio. I'm a consultant and uh, Director of Education. So welcome, everybody. We're here uh, on uh, the Friday, the second day of the conference. Um, and we just thought we'd do a quick debrief of uh, the sessions that we went to. All of us actually were in all the sessions together yesterday. Uh, Christina, you spoke this morning. Do you speak again this afternoon, or I am you are done? done. And I'm, I'm doing three <laughs> sessions. And by the way, I just realized I'm doing three sessions. I thought I was only doing two. Uh, luckily, Alex, I looked at the, uh, the presentations that you wrote for me, and and I'm ready to present them this afternoon. But I thought we'd just kind of debrief on some of the things that uh, we had talked about. Christina, why don't we uh, just start with you? You did two sessions this morning. Uh, uh, I don't even remember the names of them. Can you? And just tell us a little bit about some of the things you talked about. We did a session on CMS reimbursement updates and CPT changes, and then I also did a a session on business assessment oversight improvements for the business office aspects. And from the CMS updates, we focused on the reimbursement, talked about the total knee orthoplasties and the 
unexpected lower reimbursement rates that that everyone has questions about and how ASCA would be able to advocate for a higher reimbursement based on the facilities data mining on the um, case costing and the reimbursement rates currently in 2020 in hopes that 2021 we get a higher reimbursement rate but that was a big question for some of those in the CMS um, presentation and then of course all you know, very limited CPT code changes, but it was actually pretty quiet year. This it year was overall. very, it was unusually quiet, which is scary. And but you know, they're they're not understanding a two point six inflationary update doesn't necessarily yeah. equate to two point six per code. You have to actually look at the specialties and the CPTs that are performed, and then trying to see about that migration from the hospital outpatient department right. to the ASC, is it really gonna happen as much or as frequently as with the procedures as CMS or ASCA hopes for it to, to occur? What do you think the biggest uh, uh, takeaway from this year's of CMS, what do you think had the biggest impact based on the questions that were asked? I actually didn't attend that session, I attended the other one. You know, I think the biggest, uh, surprise really is the total knees. I think there was a surprise in, as I mentioned, the the 2.6, but it not equating um, to the 2.6 as far as when we're viewing. Um, they had to explain think, to their owners why yes, publicity says it's uh, yes, 2.6. It doesn't mean it. it. Yeah. And they have to, the, the lack of analysis really, because a lot of facilities really haven't analyzed their yeah. current um, case mix to be able to determine where they're going to get hit right. or where they're going to incur some additional reimbursement um, across the board. So the other that's been a takeaway is uh, the... The cardiology, some of the 9,000s um, reimbursements that um, as far as being able to perform them in an ASC has been one. But the big one really is the total needs. People are wanting to get higher reimbursements. They're seeing the hospital outpatient departments are around 12,000. Right. And they're not, they're, you know, we're supposed to be apples to apples at some point and we're not. So trying to get there is their big question. That's well, a big one. And I think it's one of those things, be careful what you wish for. We wanted the Medicare reimbursement to come through but we must have known, or we should have known, that that would then set the new standard for the reimbursements. So, uh, you know, we're never going to get up to that that high number that, uh, exactly that you're getting right. those contracts. And, uh, you know, it's kind of good news, bad news. It's good that finally they're recognizing it, but bad news in that the number that had been set for private pay or private insurance uh, certainly was never going to be that that number. That's right. And then and they were asking about the burden <laughs> reduction for mm -hmm. the transfers and history and physicals and the emergency preparedness that was a there was a lot of questions in regards to that as far as you know what what does what do our states say and of course they have to check the individual states to see what their reporting requirements and their accreditation yes too. yes triple ac uh, and we did talk about this in a previous podcast triple ac has come out very specifically and said that they're not going to uh, accept the changes with the hps at least initially um, and of course, we're going to give some guidance a little bit later on how to deal with um, the uh, the issue of the uh, uh, transfer agreements because the, the regulatory unburdening actually adds a new burden to us because even if we do have an existing contract, now we're going to have to report to the local hospital. 
That's in addition right. to having that that contract, so that's going to be an interesting. I think there was a side effect of that regulation right. that people didn't think so much about. Um, just to switch things up a little bit, yesterday all of us attended a, a couple sessions. Let's just start with, um, you know, uh, actually, uh, let's let's start with social media guidelines for ASCs. Everybody attended that session. It was interesting. Um, you know, because I don't think we talk a lot about you know the, the social media. Uh, any observations from uh, from from your listening to? I was it? amazed by the questions we have. Bad reviews on Google, but yeah. we don't own the Google site, so you can't go in and change. Like I, you're right, I'd never been down that road. None of that ever occurred to me, and there were people with some significant concerns in that session yesterday. Yeah. Um, if you set up your own Facebook site, and somebody you know mentions that they were displeased or certainly unsatisfied with, with something that occurred, you can go in and say, "Look at Mrs. Jones. I'm really sorry you had that experience. Um, it's our, you know, it's our intention to always to give our patients the best possible care. You know, you can do that." Um, but if it's a site that you don't own, that bad review or that, that bad comment is up there for everyone to see forever. And it seems almost impossible to go in and change that. Well, I, I think what she was saying is that you, you have to take control of that site. Um, you know, so if you have a, if reviews are shown up on Facebook or reviews are shown up on Google, you are expect, you, you should go in and, and uh, communicate with Google, communicate with Facebook. Usually there's like a link that says, I, you know, yeah, it's this a, is my it's site. Yeah, and, the young lady that spoke, um, I, I apologize, I don't remember well, her name. Well, it was Alice Beach. <laughs> uh, she's got a Bachelor of Science degree. She's a physician liaison for Pinnacle 3. And she did walk through the steps of how if a Google, one, I didn't realize that a Google or a Facebook page could just miraculously appear without you making it for yourself. Yeah. Um, but she did give pretty detailed instructions on how to go in and, and, and claim it as your right. own and then make those changes. And, and the takeaway is to follow that link that says, I own this, this business. And if that link isn't there, that probably means somebody else has grabbed it on your behalf. And one of the points, she made a couple very good points in my view was, uh, you know, first of all, one of the questions that was asked was, you know, or one of the points that was made is that some of these reviews are not from actual patients. Like sometimes they know that their competitors are logging in and giving bad reviews. But I think they may catch that one of the, the takeaways was that sometimes it is patients of the physician who are complaining about the physician's office, not the surgery right. center. Same name and they're complaining right. about the physician group and it's coming across under the ambulatory surgery. And I think she also mentioned that sometimes when there's a hospital partner and right, you're saying similar names there, um, and that gets to the point. You need to take control over your presence there, so that you can then go in and re rebut, or you know, say, "I'm sorry, you didn't have a great experience." You know, uh, and you know, and that's a valid point because I, when I see reviews, and it doesn't matter even if it, you know, ambulatory versus anything that I'm looking at, even a vendor. I look at the responses sometimes yeah. to the negative reviews to see how they handled that. Right, and if right. it, you know, I look at the validity of what they're saying versus what somebody that has commented say, that said, so. Well, I, and that's a very good point, is that I, go ahead. It's interesting to note one of the things that the speaker said was that the new trend is becoming, it's not what the provider or anyone really says about themselves, it's about what everyone else says about them, and that's becoming the the new trend, so right. it's something to keep keep an eye out for. 
Yeah, I think a big take, one of the takeaways is that we can't ignore this. Uh, we ran into this with uh, one of our clients is getting some bad reviews and they have nothing to do with the surgery center. Uh, again, it's the practice, the physician's practice that is getting, you know, all these hits. And, uh, and uh, actually, you know, it's interesting. I was at a quality improvement meeting and they were talking about the quality improvement results or, or the uh, satisfaction survey results, which are excellent. And here I am reporting this to the, the board and to the uh, the committee. Or the, the meetings were held simultaneously. And, you know, one of the doctors said, I don't care about the satisfaction survey results because these are things that we use internally to change. My public image outside is more important to me. And, you know, and I got it. Unfortunately, we're in the middle of a quality improvement meeting where, you know, we were <laughs> focusing on how can we fix things. Uh, but it did morph into another conversation. So I think one recommendation is that, first of all, I think we should be addressing this in quality improvement meetings. You know, we tend to focus on our own satisfaction surveys. Maybe we should have a section where we talk about those outside influences. And definitely this should be a board issue. Yeah, that's a good idea. It is a good idea to add those to our templates so that we can make sure that we address them. Because you're right, it was just a road I had never gone down. You know, I had never thought about. That's our outside image. That's, you know, and people will look. I do it myself. Yes. Like I do it myself. I'll look for the reviews of a even just something as simple as a restaurant. Yes, and you go and look at you know what yeah, are the so reviews? It, what are people saying? If it's something as major as surgery, that where I can choose where I go, yeah, I'm going to go on there and read those. Um, so yeah, it's a bigger issue than I think we we've given attention to. And from a millennial perspective, I was very <laughs> surprised that you know a lot of this was unknown to a lot of the surgery centers. I mean. I feel like just going and using the Google sites I see all the time, like, oh, claim this business as yours. Right. You know, those buttons show up quite frequently. So I find this also just uh, because I travel all the time and I have uh, I have my Google account to, to figure out where I am. I'm not sure how smart that is. <laughs> but I'll, I'll periodically get things, you know, that say, hey, do you want to review this place? Or they'll ask questions about that place, like, does it have a toilet? You know, I mean, don't know why you're asking that question in a restaurant. I certainly hope they have one. Uh, but, you know, they have, clearly Google is trying to find ways to gather information. And if we don't control that information, we're going we're gonna to be in trouble. You know, uh, moving on, though, my favorite session actually was the, uh, uh, the session uh, on ADA and uh, FMLA, or Family Medical Leave Act uh, Fundamentals. Um, you know, I think, uh, Christina, you and I as business owners, <laughs> we, we probably had a different perspective from everybody else, but, you know, oh, what's, uh, yes, what, did you, what did you think of that presentation? First of all, she was very dynamic. She was fabulous. Yeah, Excellent. this was Casey Duhart. She's a lawyer uh, with Waller, Lansden, Dorsch, Dorch, and Davis, and Good she job. did a great job. I wanted to get her on the podcast, but she literally... Like left the presentation and left the country. I don't know why. <laughs> she she unfortunately couldn't stick around, but she would have been a great speaker. So, oh yeah, it was. I thought it was wonderful to, and it was actually an eye opener because yeah. to have to to you know again being interactive with the employee to try to resolve as best you can for them to be able to continue in their work, depending on the disability or the um, downtime. It's an eye opener because I, you know, there's some things I don't, you know, somebody's have has a an illness and you're it's almost it I kind of the takeaway you can almost jumping through oops or offering them the max 
yeah. to really cover that you've covered your bases. Right. And um, I, but that you know, my takeaway was okay. I need to kind of revisit um, what we're doing our policies and procedures now because of that. Right. Well, I, I, so one of the things that she really focused on is what is a disability. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. she defined, by the way, it, the, the answer to that is it's an impairment that substantially limits uh, a major life activity, the ability to do something in, in your 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 day to day business. And um, and she talked about how the burden is initially on the employee to get back to you and tell you, you know, what their disability is. But the burden does shift when you recognize this disability and somebody has brought it to your attention. For example, I think she gave the example of somebody who uh, had some type of social disability. In other words, was, was a patient uh, advocate, patient uh, service coordinator, and uh, was rude to the patients. Right. Um, and that's the situation where she's not going to come back and bring about, or talk about this, uh, shall we say, social disability. Uh, but but you have to deal with it because obviously you don't want to get your your uh, your your uh, patients angry, um, and, and so they talked about reasonable accommodation and the various things that you need to do. And I think Christine, to your point, that's the thing that we as employers have to worry about is that mm -hmm. sometimes you know both you and I have very small businesses, right? You know where we can't. There's a certain limit to the amount of accommodation that we can do before right. uh, it becomes a, a, an exorbitant cost. Um, any other observations? Yeah, I mean, I I found it really interesting. Um, it's not something as a employee I've really thought about much. Um, you know that there are those safeguards in place that if you know you have some sort of disability um, that you have somewhere to go. Um, but but also that you know there's a that these reasonable safeguards have or reasonable accommodations, accommodations are in place. Right. Um, or can be put in place for you to make your life. I was impressed easier. that she seemed to stress the whole collaborative effort of it. Yeah, right. You know, to make your employee feel comfortable enough to come to you with, right. I, and this is what's happening, and um, so that they, I think they'll have more more of the opportunity to be honest and open with you if you make them feel comfortable and safe. You know, so the collaborative effort that that she seemed to stress was perfect. I thought. Yeah, so just a couple notes. She talked about the different re, uh, types of accommodation, like job restructuring, modifying the work schedule, you know, like allowing them to go part-time or working on a modified work schedule, reassignment to a vacant position, which uh, is actually a pretty reasonable thing nowadays, given the number of vacant positions we often have in the surgery center, you know, modifying equipment or buying new equipment. Uh, but, of course, that, that, becomes an un that could be an undue burden. Uh, if we're not careful, so you know, and, and again, you're not required to you know spend enormous yeah, money unless you're reasonable, a reasonable, reasonable right. accommodation. Uh, you know, changing policies, providing uh, readers or interpreters again, that could be very expensive. I guess that's if you know they they have an impairment where they can't hear, um, and uh, you know, uh, providing leave, and again, that gets into the FMLA part. So. Uh, you know, we'll do an episode uh, sometime in the future about FMLA because that is a big topic. But the big news there, or big takeaway, is that you don't actually have a requirement until you reach 50 employees. But remember, it's 50 employees, not 50 FTEs. You know, so if you have an operation with you know like three part-time or full-time employees and 72 
per diems, which, I mean, we have a lot of organizations that have a very large number of per diems, you can find yourself in the situation where you're actually required to have an FMLA program, and yet you actually have a relatively small number of staff right. on board at any given time. Just offline for a second here. Did anybody attend the last session, Drive Success for Patient, Surgeon, and Employee Satisfaction? Yeah, we did patient, surgeon, and employee satisfaction. It was the last one we did yesterday yeah, afternoon. Do you remember it? Do you have anything to say about it? <laughs> I don't even have notes on it. How was that? How was that, was, that was Michelle. Uh, that was Michelle. Oh, okay. George from SCA. Yeah, I, I enjoyed her. Yeah. I, um, and she did sort of play off of what Ann Geyer had started in the beginning as yeah. far as her big thing was about the rounding. Yeah. You know, to get yourself out of your office. Just let's go online for that one. So I think you know there were two sessions that talked about employee engagement and uh, you know driving uh, employee satisfaction. Uh, Ann Geyer, who uh, is our of course dear friend, she is the um, <laughs> Ann Geyer, who is our dear friend, she is the chief nursing officer for Surgical Information Systems. Did a session on creating a team culture, what works and what doesn't, and. Uh, Michelle George, who is the Senior Director of Clinical Services for Surgical Care Affiliates, talked about driving success through patient, surgeon, and employee satisfaction. Uh, all you know, good friends, and, and it was a good session. I think one of the big takeaways here was a lot of time spent on talking about employee engagement, about uh, rounding, about doing, uh, you know, finding ways in order to engage your employees in a positive manner. And, and uh, we're going to probably get her on to speak sometime, you know, on this episode here, but she, she had some wonderful stories. Actually, they were horrible stories about employers that clearly uh, should not have been employees. And of course, all my employees were next to me and they were just praising, you know, the way that uh, of course, <laughs> our business, uh, mainly because I was watching them uh, the entire time. Right. <laughs> we were not looking at you when she was talking about uh, bad managers. <laughs> half of our president. just kept her head down. <laughs> so anybody have some uh, takeaways for that? What, what, what's, what are the things that stood out? Well, I think definitely starting with the rounding, um, how critical it is to you know, touch base with each of your employees on a regular basis and not not micromanage, but see see how they're doing, see what they need um, so that they feel like they have that support yeah. from you. Yeah. I mean... And she made this great point about how, like, you can walk past an employee and say, good job. Yeah. And nothing else. You know, where she went on to say, no, if you're rounding and you speak to patients or you speak to doctors, you speak to other employees and they say... Well, Judy, you know, really worked her butt off today. We were really busy, and she was right on task. Don't go to Judy and say, well, great job today. No. Thank you so much for all the extra effort you put in today because we were so busy. You know, be very specific about what they did, because if you just say, great job, and they want more of that positive feedback, they don't really know what they did to do yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and, and you can only do that if you get out of your office yeah. and walk, you know, and actually interact and pay attention. And she made a really clear, just such a clear concept about that that I hadn't thought about. You know, I'm not in a, uh, a clinical setting anymore, but I see the value of it. Right. Yeah, and going off of that, actually doing that in front of patients when, you know, maybe your employees are within the earshot, but, you know, really talking to the patient saying, oh, you're in great hands, this is a great nurse, um, which not that I'm in nursing, but this is something I've actually seen John do, and I was like, huh, that's... That's where he's going with that. So it, is, it really uh, 
kind of brought it full circle for me. I think we always have to realize that, uh, you know, employees, I think there's, there's this presumption, which is probably, which is, is not accurate, that uh, employees are purely motivated by money and that the only rewards that they, uh, they understand, you know, are bonuses and things like that. And, you know, there's studies all over the place that kind of counter that, that, that indeed you need ongoing, uh, continuous, uh, you know, feedback. Uh, and, and as you said, Judy, just to make sure that we're specific about that feedback so they know what, uh, what, no, we're all right. <laughs> what, uh, feedback, so, uh, specific feedback so they know and, and can continue to do those things that we want them to be doing in a positive way. I, one of my favorite stories she talked about, though, is this one manager who had read a book about how laughter was, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> how laughter was extremely important for satisfaction for employee satisfaction. Uh, so he forced the employees at a meeting to laugh for sixty seconds, which apparently did not actually engender a positive feeling. <laughs> Because it well, didn't seem like at that point that they really felt like laughing for 50, 50, 60 seconds. I mean, I feel like this is a good exercise. We should try this right now. <laughs> Do we want to try it? <laughs> Probably won't come over very well on a podcast. But, you know, but the point being is that you got to be careful about those uh, those things that you <laughs> read on the internet or you know some of these self help books that uh, often uh, you know are, are perhaps not designed for our industry or or you know kind of have these silly you know connotations to them. Well, I appreciate your time. Um, you know, we'll uh, we'll probably reconnect at some point and uh, move on. Judy, you're not going to be here this afternoon uh, for our afternoon session. But, sorry, uh, it's all right. Sorry. And, <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. So, uh, thank you again. So we're back, um, and we're we're sitting here with uh, Ann Geyer. Ann, thank you for uh, for joining us. And I have Alex Borneman and uh, Zachary Calritis, and uh, hiding in the corner is uh, Lori Rodericks, who's uh, our director of clinical services uh, for ambulatory healthcare strategies. She doesn't want to talk, but we'll ask her questions anyway. And you did a fantastic job yesterday. You. Sorry, I can't hit the table. You did a fantastic job yesterday with your you. uh, leadership question, um, and so uh, I mean. We talk about this a lot. Yes. And I think, I, I want you to tell at least a couple of the stories. Oh, heaven. Because I think, uh, so you gave some stories that showed kind of what not so good leadership is. Yes. And how uh, the best of intentions sometimes ends up, you know, with very power outcome, poor outcomes. So can you talk a little bit about some of those things that you gave well, as an example? just stories that happened to me because I was relating how bad bosses destroy the possibility of creating a team culture. And we spent a lot of time talking about bad bosses. And so I talked about things that had happened to me. Um, when I went to a job in North Carolina, and I was an experienced OR nurse, had been the clinical educator in, this, in the previous job I had, and I was assigned to a room my third day on the job for an ortho case. And the surgical tech contaminated the back table with his surgical vest, and I told him. And he looked at me and he said, no, I didn't. I said, you did. Well, he went out, grabbed his doctor, brought the doctor back with my manager, and they're, they're proceeding to get very upset. And the manager looks at the doctor, says, she's a new OR nurse. She doesn't know what she's doing. Well, that was it for her. On my book, she didn't have my back. 
had lied about my experience, and I was gone within six months. The, the it, What goes around comes around. Right. The nice thing for me was that people that had worked with me in that short period of time recruited me to open the first HOPD at the hospital. Yeah. So I had never been a manager, had never worked in outpatient surgery, and the next thing I know, I'm learning a new field with all new people, all new skills, and I've never looked back. Right. So it worked out for me. But there are so many examples out there. Bosses, another one, I was on a AAA survey, doing a survey with a center that administrator delegated it to two of her employees to do, but gave them absolutely no skills, no tools, no no learning, just the standards book. Yeah. And they were lost. And they... It was my opinion that they couldn't go back to her. She was not supportive. Well, by the first day of the survey, she comes in to the administrator and says to me, what did you do to make my nurses cry? I said, I didn't do anything to make them cry. She said, well, they don't even want to come back in here to talk to you. And I said, they're intimidated, but it's just black and white. I gave them the standards I'm looking for, and I, she said, it's all on them. I gave them the tools. I gave them the responsibility, and they didn't do it, and it's their fault. She, threw she them was the administrator. She was the administrator, yeah. so she threw them under the bus. Yeah. I don't know this, but I would put money that those employees are no longer there. Right, right. And, here, and here at the meeting, I had <laughs> several people stop me and say, how do I handle my manager? And then tell me stories about their bad managers. Um, and it's destroying them. And these two young ladies in this last session, they'll be gone before too long. I don't think yeah. I can solve their problem. They have a very disengaged manager. And she hides and does things that she'd rather be doing rather than managing the surgery center. So um, stories get people's attention. Yeah. It helps to point, illustrate points that you try to make. And almost in all of the talks that I give, I talk, even in credentialing, I talk about true stories. And I've been around so long that I have a lot of them. So. Uh, I, you know, I think I, I've been called on recently to start talking a lot more about leadership and how we prepare the next generation. I think we're all getting where we're sitting next to two millennials over here. There's absolutely. three of us that are, let's say, not millennials no, and two millennials. And we know that eventually we have to turn it over to these young people. You know, but I, and I think we're all getting worried because... Um, the, the, you know, I, during one of my sessions in New York, I, I asked, you know, the funny question, you know, how many of you went to school to become a, a surgery center administrator? How many of you went to school to become a nursing director in a surgery center? You know, obviously none of yes. us did. And then I asked the question, how many of you woke up, uh, came into work on Monday morning and realized that you were now the director of the center because... The, uh, yeah. the previous director uh, quit. I called the, them the, the accidental administrator. That's right. And I think what happens is it's a tag you're it. Yeah. We need a warm body to fill the role, and then they're not given any tools to succeed. And they end up leaving. Yeah. Or they become one of those bad bosses because they're struggling to cover up their Peter principle. They're going to do everything wrong, but they don't want anybody to know it. And yeah. a lot of people have the imposter syndrome where they have... They don't believe they know what they know. Yeah. And so they act. They're always thinking somebody's going to find them out. And in reality, they do know what they're supposed to know, but they don't believe it internally. They don't even know what the imposter syndrome is because whenever I mention it to people, they look at me and I said, this is what it is. You don't really believe you're as smart as you are. Yeah. And I said, it, 
you just have to keep learning and you have to keep reaching out to people and you can't be embarrassed to ask questions. It's I, I'm training my successor. Now that I said you heard me say yesterday, it may be when I retire, which I have no plans to do, or when I drop not, dead or when I drop dead in front of everybody. But at that point, it my job needs to go on seamlessly. Yeah. And if you've hogged the information and you've controlled that information, it's not gonna be a seamless transition. And nobody wins. Right. And so part of the job is to share your knowledge, John, and yeah. I share mine, Lori shares hers, with others so that they are never in that position. Right. That when it is time for them to step up, even if it's temporary, they feel like they have somebody that's got their back, someone that can they can reach out to and help them succeed. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, that we've been talking about this a lot. But I, we, we need, I'm looking at you, Lori, because you know, well, we're on the education committee together. And a lot of the decisions that we have to make are, you know, what, what are the needs as we move forward? And how do we, I know you didn't want to talk, <laughs> but you, you run into the same things that I do, is that as we plan for this, and Alex, you're the planner for the New York State Association meeting, how do we, how do we outfit you know, the next generation. Are we doing a good job of it right now? And I guess I'm going to admit right now, as we're sitting here, that maybe, you know, we focus so much on, you know, real tactical skills that we're not necessarily looking at, you know, skills that are, are more... Um, people? Yeah. Well, and, and, and preparing people for, for dealing with strategic issues. And that's what it is, is that when you're dealing with uh, upper management, you're dealing with, uh, with strategic skills that we're not doing a good job of training right now. Well, <clears throat> part of it, too, is listening to the people around us. Um, like Ann said, people came up to her with issues from their centers. Very specific. And yeah. it's having a way to put that out there, similar to the podcast, you know, talking about it. Or, you know, meetings like this, if there's attendees that can put in their evaluations things that they feel are, are important. And the hardest thing is, as, you know, and you said it very nicely, when you drop dead, <laughs> you, you hope someone can step into your shoes Absolutely. and continue going. And that's, that's the role. You know, like, uh, you know, earlier in, in the discussion, I had said one of the biggest compliments I ever got was when a vendor said he had no idea I wasn't there because my staff right. did such a great job just carrying on the day. And it's true. That resonated with me because the first time I went to a national meeting, probably 25 years ago, for over a week, I was gone a long time, and I was so worried about what was going on at the center, and my doctor said to me, we don't even want you to call in. You've done such a good job yeah. of training the people that are here. We have total confidence that they'll handle everything the way you would handle it. Right. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. But it gave me such a sense of freedom that I could go to a meeting and right. learn and you brought up how many of you have gotten calls the whole time you've been at the meeting. Yeah. It's very hard to stay focused. I think one good thing about this meeting is the people that spoke in a large, most of the people who spoke are people with great credibility in this industry, people who have been here and done it a long yeah. time. And when they addressed people, they shared a higher level of education than I typically see at meetings. I mean, that's why I sat in at most of the sessions, because I can always learn something new, but I was learning it from people who I really trust. Right. The other thing that I always say to people that ask me questions, 
do you have a card? Most of these poor young yeah. nurses don't have a card, so write out your information. And I give them my card. And I said, let's set up a call next week and discuss your issues. Yeah. And I said, I'll be happy to mentor you. And I'll do it over the phone. And so I have somebody I've mentored in Kentucky for 15 years now, and I've met her one time. Yeah. And, and she can call out to me for anything. So Because she's not afraid to ask questions. So if nothing else, we can serve as mentors to our trainees. Right. And, and, I, and encourage that to happen. Absolutely. In these types of settings. Yeah. I, I mean, and the other thing, too, is unfortunately there are a lot of people that are afraid to share their knowledge because they don't want to be replaced. Yeah. It's control and power. It's, you know, so that's, that's a hard thing. And you can't teach someone how to give that up. No. Um, so you have to hope that there is more out there that are willing to share and mentor, as you said, because that's that's how the next generation is, is going to learn. That's how you guys, you millennials, are going to take care of us old people. Mm-hmm. That's why we have to be nice to them. Well, I know that all of us <laughs> here, right. we all can identify people in our work, in, either through surveys, running surgery center, whatever we do, that we see that are rising stars. Yeah. And if they have a boss that controls information, the only way they're ever going to go to the next level is if they leave. Sure. But they don't always know that. And so they kind of get stuck. And until that person leaves or retires, they are stuck. And it usually takes a traumatic event yeah. to make them decide, this isn't, I'm not going anywhere. I'm at a dead end. And sometimes coming to a meeting like this is when they're going to realize there's life outside of my surgery center, but I need to be a risk taker. I've got to take the chance that I'm going to land on my two feet. So I think one of the things that we have to make clear uh, to the stakeholders, you know, the owners of the surgery center too, is that um, the transition is not something that can be done in a month or two. No. If you're training your successor, I'm sure your successors are going to have years of training. I, you know, I hope to turn my business at some point over to some of the, shall we say, millennials in the room. And uh, we know that, uh, you know, I've got probably about eight years before retirement here, and we'll need every ounce of those years to do it. Uh, and I, I, and we have to recognize that. Yeah. Uh, learning the types of things that we learn yes. in today's environment is not just a one-year or two-year. It's, no, it's at least it's a three-year It's process. an ongoing and process. It's ongoing. And I'm blessed because I'm no longer in the clinical setting. Yeah. But working for SIS, Surgical Information Systems, they've given me, they've empowered me to go out and do a lot of public speaking because I think they realize that by sharing what I know as a subject matter, matter expert, people are learning from that. And I am associated with a great company, so I get to do that. I can also do accreditation surveys. I do consulting work through SIS. It's like they're not afraid to let me share what I know. And the sales people that I work with are the best in the country, and they love it when I get involved in issues because I can answer questions that they can't. And we yeah. probably should uh, thank SIS. They become a sponsor in February of the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, and they're happy the to dedication. do that. We, we, really we talked it. about it this week at our at our meeting. Very good. So I'm not going to let the millennials off the hook here because we've been talking yeah, about we well, we've been talking about you know what do we need to do in order to prepare the next level for leadership. So I'm going to put you on the hook by asking the question you you've learned very differently 
than we did. You know, we, we from our generation learn by lecturing. And frankly, that's kind of what we do when we teach now. Yes. Um, and I think my question to you is you've been, you both of you have been to a number of conferences now, and frankly, our teaching techniques have not changed a lot. What, as you watch or as you've seen these episodes, these, um, the speeches, presentations here, what could we do better to reach out and to prepare you, you know, for the future? You're, you're going to be our leaders. You're going to be the people that are doing what we're doing now in the future. How can we better prepare that? Are, are you prepared to answer that question even? Um, I, I think on a, on a few levels. Um, so one level, I think in terms of getting participation at these um, meetings before people get put in those situations where, okay, now they're in it the administrator, now they're the nurse manager, what do I do? Yeah. Um, you know, getting the nurses involved and the clinical staff and the business staff coming to these um, meetings so that way they they understand what's happening in the industry before they get put in that sort of situation. And get exposed to all levels in the operation. That, I know that's one thing. You're, you're not going, you, you, uh, two of you are the financial people, and I don't think you've been, well, you've been to a couple, Zach, but yeah. uh, you're not attending the financial sessions, which is great. I appreciate that. You, yeah. uh, you've been stretching yourself by listening to Christina Benton, you know, our dear friend, um, and, and somebody pointed out that they had no idea what coding was. I think, Zach, you said you thought we were talking about computer coding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's my mistake. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, and I realized I had a whole conversation with Christina about audits, and we were talking about two totally different audits. <laughs> but to that point is I think sometimes we draw conclusions without always surveying them. We're not, we're not asking the questions of the people that we're trying to reach. You, oh, but I'm so good at dumbing it down that everybody <laughs> understands me. No, no, I think that starts at registration. Yeah. You need to know the age group of the audience we're going to be speaking to. Yeah. The millennials learn differently than the boomers do. Right. And I think that if you know you're going to have an audience that's got a third of them are going to be millennials, they tend not to stay in a job very long. They have right. a short attention span. They like visuals. They don't want slides that are covered with writing because they're going yeah. to they're going to tune that out. So what do you do? How do you grab that millennial to make the talk interesting for them? Right. And I think that a lot of speakers haven't figured that out yet. But then we're not given that information. Who is yeah. your audience? Everybody at this table has been to meetings where you get a keynote speaker who's gotten paid big bucks to come talk to the audience and doesn't have a clue who he's talking to. Pronounce uh, ASC, ACS, or ambulatory services. Or AORN and say AORN, you know, which AORN hates. I hate it anyway. But then they don't even know what we do. So if they're at an ASCA meeting, they don't realize what we do for a living Mm -hmm. and they throw out examples where you realize number one it's a canned speech number two they didn't bother to learn their audience now the next keynote speaker gets up there and personally addresses an experience they had in one of our surgery centers or a family member had an experience in the surgery center and how it changed their life oh my gosh they've got everybody in the room everybody's listening they did their homework And I think that just looking at this meeting, I think most of the speakers have done their homework. They know who they're talking to, and they've covered. I think they've done a good job. A lot of what we're teaching has to be black and white. Right. But I think the way that I've 
listen to the speakers has been really good this time. And we're using technology. Right. Everything has been done on our devices. Yeah. The evaluations are on the device, Attend uh, the attendance, the questions are on the device. Heck, what can you, I mean, that's what we do these days, even us oldsters. Christina Benton and I were talking yesterday, and for those of you that are not aware of this, Christina and uh, I, our two companies, are are trying to put together, I mentioned this to you and earlier, we're trying to put together a uh, finance, uh, financial management and uh, coding uh, for ASC yes. specific, very different from what we're doing here, uh, geared toward a you know, slightly different audience. And Christina has a lot of experience in putting together these things in the past. And one of the things that she suggested, which I think is a genius idea, is that, <clears throat> you know, we, so one of the technological changes that we've made here is uh, people can type in their questions. Yes, I love that. While they're here. And Christina kind of said, what if we ask them upon registration? for questions in the different sessions. In other words, what, you know, if we list that you're going to be talking about finance 101 or coding or or leadership and uh, and uh, you know, uh, change or you know, change management, uh, have them ask questions that they want to have addressed right off the bat. Right no. off the bat before the con before you even get there. Yeah. So that the I would love that cuz they think could address those those yeah. issues. But but the the thing that would be more beneficial is as presenters, we have to have all of our information in so, so early yeah. Yeah. that when we get the questions from the attendees, it's after the fact, and you may not yeah. have a single that's slide a good, or whatnot that goes yeah. with it. She has to be the naysayer, but <laughs> no. But think well, about yeah. it. I mean, the, most of the time, our slides are due six weeks before the I presentation, know. and when you ask about the audience, they don't even know who's coming at that right. point. Right. So right. Um, we, that's something we can tweak. We'll have to think well, about and, that. And sometimes maybe we're thought. not asking to change the slides, but we're. You know, hopefully the questions they're asking are going to at least be part of the content that we've already scheduled. It's just mm -hmm. that we tailor our conversation a little bit differently. Well, one another way that. we could do it is get those questions the week before, and right. that we've downloaded our slides onto a, a thumb drive. Now we put the thumb drive in there where we right. have addressed those questions. Everybody has our basic handouts. Yeah. For our talk, but now we're going to be addressing the ones that are specific to the audience. As long as. If we put too much onus on the association, yeah. it may become an issue. And I'm not saying that in favor of the association. It's just sometimes it's tough. And then me as an attendee coming and those slides that I'm looking at are not the slides that are on my device might get a little cranky. Um, because it's she's starting to sound different. like your husband, the Debbie Downer here, you know. But but I get it. I, but I agree. do you know Crabby what I mean? You got to look Crabby at Carl. Crabby Carl. <laughs> yeah. Carl. You, you got. Yeah. He doesn't listen. <laughs> you know. But, but you have to look at both sides of it, just because. Yeah, no, your your point's well taken. It is well taken. I, but I, I again, I'm a problem solver. My yeah. solution to that is. The basic presentations, what they've got, we add those questions at the end of ours and uh -huh. say, if you want a copy of this, we'll send them to you afterwards. And that, and that way, they are following you. Uh -huh. Get you don't do that till you get to the end, unless gotcha. one has is already being addressed. Or, or just build into our slides going yeah, into right. it that there's going to be a section where we're going to add yeah, things. A separate section. Uh -huh. yeah. But uh -huh. that's. A, I mean, I think I've often thought that the the instructor had no clue who they were talking yeah. to. And even in our in our industry, they get up there and it's like they missed the boat. That's not yeah. what we need. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I want to thank all of you. As always, it's great to get together. And you've been a delight, as Thanks. always, on this podcast. I know I had laryngitis the last time. <laughs> I know you did. did. <laughs> and it was awful. Yeah, you did a great job. I guess job, that was two, two podcasts ago. Yeah. Oh. But thank you so much. Uh, we'll, I'm going to actually try to drop this tonight, so we'll see if we can get this out before tomorrow and everybody. But thank you for all of your time. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks. So I would like to thank all of our guests for our very special episode recorded live from ASCA 2020 Winter Seminar. Christina Benton, President of Coding Compliance Management. Ann Geyer, Chief Nursing Officer for Surgical Information Systems. Lori Rodericks, Director of Clinical Services for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Education for AHS. Alex Borneman, Director of Operations for AHS. And Zach Borneman, Consultant with AHS. Indeed, I was able to drop this episode on Friday night, meaning publish the episode to the internet, but to do so, I didn't do a lot of editing, so I, we apologize for it uh, being a little more spontaneous and, and for any sound quality issues. This is John Gailey. Please join us again next week for another episode of the ASC Podcast, and please consider becoming a patron member by following the links to the show notes or visiting our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all the rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development, All Rights Reserved. We would like to thank this week's sponsors. First, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, one of the nation's leading regulatory compliance and financial oversight firms. For a free consultation, contact John Gailey today at 585-594-1167 or through email at info at ah-strategies.com. And Eden Group Development, which publishes ASC Regulatory Compliance Series, the ASC industry's leading books including The Survey Guide for ASCs, A Guide to the CMS Conditions for Coverage and Interpretive Guidelines for Ambulatory Surgery Centers, and Ambulatory Surgery Center Governance, A Guide for Ambulatory Surgery Center Owners and Governing Body Members. These must-have books are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble or directly from the publisher at reg-books.com. That's R-E-G-B-O-O-K-S dot com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.